Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Chris Clow, editor of Reverse Mortgage Daily, to talk about the latest actions taken by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and a new lender joining the reverse space. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Matt Dowd, Vice President of Product Management at ICE Mortgage Technology, about mortgage automation. Matt, how does automated underwriting help the housing industry in general, especially with getting more people into homes? Well, there's a few ways that I can see how accelerating this process helps more people get into a home. First off, by reducing the time required to process loan applications and providing faster loan approval times and really making more accurate lending decisions, that should help more people get into homes. You know, the quicker and consistent decisioning actually increases the likelihood of approval so that when we run across life events and such, which happen during any of the process and could change the borrower's circumstances. So by implementing the process in uh, technology, you know, in creating these speeds and efficiencies, I think lenders can focus more time on attracting more borrowers, which should result in more closed loans and ultimately provide more opportunities for people to become homeowners. Great points. And listeners, you can find out more at icemortgagetechnology.com. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Sarah. I appreciate it. Of course. I love having you on. Not only are you the editor of Reverse Mortgage Daily, which we're definitely going to talk about some of that coverage, but you also are doing a lot of reporting um, on the forward side, um, real estate, regulatory things. And that's the the thing I want to start with today is some of your reporting on the CFPB. So that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And people in our space are very familiar with them. So let's talk about the MBA and, and what they've, uh, th- their latest action asking the CFPB to withdraw a proposed rule. Yeah, so uh, the MBA and several other associations that are affiliated with state regulators are asking the CFPB to withdraw a proposed rule that they unveiled in December that requires non-bank financial services providers to report public agency enforcement actions and court orders. The MBA basically contends that the rule as laid out conflicts with the CFPB's responsibility to try and limit the regulatory burden on uh, on private sector actors or to consider the costs and benefits that its actions could impose by creating sort of an additional track for enforcement. And MBA says that this is a rule that fails on both accounts. So they seem to be pretty... Uh, pretty dead set against it. And they have a a fair amount of these, these state level organizations that are co-signatories on a letter that, uh, that was submitted, I believe it was last week. So, um, the rule, it basically extends from the consumer financial protection act. Um, and they propose that certain non-bank covered person entities with exclusions for insured depository institutions or credit unions, or people, or states, uh, under certain final public orders obtained or issued by a local agency uh, in connection with offering or uh, provision of a consumer financial product or service, needs to report the existence 
of such orders to a registry that the bureau would set up. So they're uh, they're saying that this registry would include all final public orders and judgments, including consent and stipulated orders and judgments obtained or issued by the bureau or any government agency. So it would be a pretty expansive uh, database of information. And MBA basically came out and said that they support the bureau's efforts to try and deter unlawful behavior and to identify entities that engage in repeat violations, um, but that they should be more focused on trying to help mortgage lenders lower origination costs by removing and not proposing what they call duplicative regulatory requirements that will provide little benefit to consumers. So um, the primary concern that the MBA laid out is that a lot of the information that the CFPB is seeking through this is already public. There's a lot of uh, public, local, state, or federal consumer financial protection agency or court orders that are already captured through the NMLS consumer access portal. So the duplicative reporting uh, basically stems from that. This is already information that's available. Why are you putting an additional regulatory burden on these, these companies to report something that you're already capturing in other places? Well, and that a consumer could find out in other places if they want to. You know, the consumer can already find this. It's public information. So it's almost like, you know, wh- wherever you work, if someone's like, okay, I know you're doing all this. Now now here's another spreadsheet to fill out, right? Here's a whole other thing that you have to do. And to your point, um, this is all happening in an environment where it's, you know, it's it's costing a lot of money to originate every, every loan because volume is so is so low. So it seems like an odd time to be like, hey, let's do this. Yeah. And I mean, I think I can see considering some past actions that we've seen the CFPB spearhead in the past, they they are probably coming from the perspective of simplifying the access to that information uh, and making it easier for consumers to find. But that doesn't negate the idea that it is already out there for consumers to find if they look. But the CFPB in the past has tried to uh, I guess, from their perspective, make things as easy as possible for consumers to to locate. Um, but uh, I think the the MBA also said that um, you know, in terms of the individual attesting to compliance with consent orders, it would serve. They said in in their letter as an unfair public shaming tool, and that the bureau uh, through this rule's imposition uh, actually downplays the role of public registries, including the NMLS, uh, and consequently overestimates the potential consumer benefits that this new rule would bring. So I think it's a reasonable argument to make, certainly, but whether or not the CFPB will see it that way, we're not totally sure at this point, but uh, I haven't heard any changes to um, to their, their plans for implementing this rule, but I'm sure there's a lot of conversations behind the scenes that we're not privy to that could impact how things ultimately play out. No, I think that's really interesting. And of course, the, um, one of the knocks on independent mortgage banks or um, IMBs, as we call them, non-bank lenders, is that they're, they don't have as much regulatory oversight. You know, They're not regulated as much as um, depository institutions. That's hard to argue in some ways, though, when you think about the layers of state oversight um, and and federal oversight still. So um, I think it was interesting that the MBA was trying to carve that out for IMBs. Certainly. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's anybody's guess. The CFPB, as we've already talked about before on this show between you and I, has a more active posture when compared to the, you know, the, the, the previous four years before President Biden came into office. So 
Um, you know, it's possible that they feel like there's some lost ground they need to make up. Um, but at the same time, too, it's understandable that, you know, these associations that look out for the interests of the, the mortgage industry and the associated lenders and, and other companies are going to cry foul if they see that something is is not, uh, you know, in keeping with either their ability to do business or with previous regulations that they already have to conform to. There's reasonable arguments to be had either way, but I'll certainly be keeping an eye on whether or not this is going to play out in the way that, uh, that either side is expecting it to. Well, you know, speaking of previous regulatory (laughs) enforcement actions, let's, let's talk about another story you did Uh, last week. It also has to do with the uh, consumer protection act where the CFPB issued a new policy statement that outlines standards for the legal prohibition of abusive conduct in consumer financial markets. So I I thought this was really interesting. And when I saw it come over, um, you know, when I first looked at it, I was like, does this really have to do, you know, is this more about the, the pay companies? This is, you know, there's a, there's a, the financial markets are a pretty big thing, but one of his, one of his comments, um, I'm sorry, the, the chairman, um, the CFPB director, Rohit Chopra, said, you know, he he specifically brought up the mortgage crisis, the financial crisis and the mortgage um, industry's role in that. And so I thought that was interesting when it's like, I feel like we already have this covered. <laughs> kind of give us an outline of, of what that story is about. Yeah. So um, the last week, it was a new policy statement that came out and it outlines standards for the legal prohibition of abusive conduct in consumer financial markets. And um, it's it's kind of a way that it seems like the federal government over the past couple of years, when they issue uh, regulatory or policy guidance in areas of housing in particular, sometimes they just kind of let things build up as opposed to codifying it in some of the more specific regulations that we've seen. You know, we've certainly seen that on on the forward and reverse mortgage sides where they just kind of issue a bunch of mortgagee letters over a long period of time. Uh, and it creates a kind of a, a confusing uh, narrative path to follow in terms of what is being regulated and where it was instituted. So this is a summary of, of what the CFPB calls a decade of precedent. And yeah, these were uh, prohibitions that were established in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but the the Bureau said that this is a policy statement that will assist consumer financial protection enforcers in identifying wrongdoing and will help firms avoid committing abusive acts or practices. And yes, Director Chopra, he said that this is guidance that provides information that will assist regulators with enforcing the standards governing abusive practices. And he also uh, spoke at the University of California, Irvine Law School about uh, the, as you alluded to, the response to the 2008 um, financial crisis. And he said the CFPB issued today's guidance to provide an analytical framework to help federal and state agencies hold companies accountable when they violate the law and take advantage of families. And there are basically two standards that uh, define abusive acts or practices. According to the guidance, the first is obscuring important features of a product or service or leveraging certain circumstances, including gaps in understanding, unequal bargaining power, or consumer reliance to take unreasonable advantage. And they uh, they, they released almost an entirely other dissertation about what that unreasonable advantage looks like and the various permutations that, uh, that, that form the basis of what they're going for. So um, there are three basic elements to the idea of unreasonable advantage. One is a lack of understanding on the part of the consumer of any material risks 
costs or conditions of the product or service that they're seeking out. The other is an ability of the consumer to protect the interests of the consumer in selecting or using a consumer financial product or service. And then finally, it's the reasonable reliance by the consumer on a covered person to act in the interests of the consumer. So, I mean, it's basically a way of saying, look, there are companies who try to take advantage of gaps in understanding and that might push a consumer to make a decision that may not be in their best interest. So CFPB, it sounds like at least, is trying to codify and cover uh, ways that uh, that the consumers that they are charged with protecting could avoid that kind of a circumstance. It is very narrowly circumscribed, and I'm sure that that makes a lot of the the regulated businesses chafe a bit, and understandably so. But you know, this is again a policy that we haven't seen uh, an abundance of um, of, of future, uh, I, I guess, uh, indications about how things will go. But again, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be conversations with associations and other related trade groups about how and where this is going to be implemented for the long term. I think, you know, on the one hand, I've I've been a critic of the CFPB's policy of regulation by enforcement, right? Where it's like, we're going, we're not going to be very specific. We're going to use you, you know, we're going to see when someone does something wrong and find them for it, you know, slap their hand. And that's a, that's a lesson that all, everybody else should look to and, and take away something from that. And the reason, so that was a very specific policy of Richard Cordray when he was director. And, and his reasoning was like, if I get too specific, if we get too specific as a regulator, people will just find ways around it. Right. So if, if we write it very, um, down to down to the wire, then then there's loopholes. Whereas if it's pretty broad, then you got to kind of be watching your p's and q's. You know, <laughs> I I can imagine that that is uh, very frustrating for people who are trying to you know who are like just tell me what is and isn't because there are definitely some things areas of that it's it's uh, gray areas and and even people who want to stay on the right side might be you know, very confused about. So when I saw this, I was like, oh, is this, is this a further clarification? But it doesn't, I I mean, I do think that codifying like, here's, here are your parameters for regulation could be helpful if you're a business, but mostly this seems more like, hey, you know, regulators, here are the, here are the ways that you can look at this and, and, you know, enforce things. So I guess I didn't find it super helpful. Um, if I was a, if I was in the mortgage industry looking at this for like some guidance, it seems more on the, you know, really targeted to the regulators and not super helpful to the industry. Yeah. And at the same time, I wonder too, if a lawyer looking at this guidance might find different ways to interpret it, because I'm certainly not a legal professional, but um, it seems at least plausible to me that considering that the CFPB and its practices have garnered additional attention and scrutiny on Capitol Hill, that maybe the, uh, the, the issuance of this kind of a guidance could prove to be uh, an answer to some of the criticisms regarding the general nature of previous guidance as it relates to uh, abusive acts and practices or unfair and deceptive acts and practices in some cases, UDAP. But um, yeah, we'll have to see because I'm sure that the uh, the scrutiny of the CFPB, particularly in the House Financial Services Committee, that's not going to slow down anytime soon. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that we'll see Rohit Chopra on Capitol Hill probably testifying about uh you know instances of 
of, of additional guidance that they're aiming to provide. And I mean, they'll have to answer the questions substantively, and this might be one way for them to do that. But um, it's a good question. You know, I'll have to look into whether or not maybe some of the entities that are regulated, maybe they do see this with a, a clearer lens. But I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if, as you just said, there's not much additional clarity that comes from this. I think that remains to be seen. Well, I, I think if you look at just the two standards that they live, uh, you know, that they outline, one of them is leveraging certain circumstances, including gaps in understanding, unequal bargaining power, or consumer reliance to take unreasonable advantage. Well, okay, what are the gaps in understanding? What is unequal bargaining power, and and what is unreasonable advantage? Right, all of those things are are going to have to be litigated or, or further, you know, confirmed and get down into the weeds. Otherwise it's like, okay, I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's, un- you know what I mean? Like all of those things are, are still kind of unclear. Sure. And I mean, if I were a lawyer, uh, on the side of one of these companies that are being regulated, I could also see a potential tactic in in realizing that, hey, this is language that is interpretable in a, a couple of different ways. So here's how we believe this doesn't apply. But at the same time, you know, the CFPB can come back and say, well, here's how it does. Apply. So there's there's a lot of legal wrangling that could potentially come from this. But at the same time, too, you know, the fact that there is additional guidance that is, uh, you, you know, that's codified, that's actually in black and white on a page that could provide uh, benefit uh, for some of these regulated companies to defend themselves if they are hit with an enforcement action of some kind. Uh, you know, the, the language wrangling, it's, I, I thought about becoming a lawyer when I was in college and my pre-law professor told me not to pursue it because he says it will change your personality and the people around you will know that it has changed your personality. <laughs> so, As anyone who has been close to a lawyer can attest, right? Exactly. I mean, they have to think through just like the very specific elements of the language and that is ultimately, you know, their job to parse things out in a way that that makes sense and advocate for their clients. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this is going to be interpreted going forward, but I can see this providing ammunition both to the regulator and to the entity that is subject to enforcement rules. But, you know, we'll see if there's a more organized response from industry in the weeks and months ahead. And it could be that they're just trying to outline where this is a consumer financial protection issue and when they would be involved versus, I mean, I mean, CFPB is still a pretty young regulator in the scheme of things. And so maybe they're still just outlining this is, this is what belongs to, you know, consumer financial protection versus all these other things. But, you know, I think if you're in the business of uh, mortgage lending and, and you're trying to do the right thing, I don't know that this helped. That's that's the last thing I'll say. I, it's similar to, um, and I believe we talked about this last time, when they issued um, a joint statement on a appraisal discrimination lawsuit, and you know they 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 that statement had a lot of things in it, but there were a lot of things that weren't clear. And so you know I I've reached out to the CFPB and was like. Hey, I'd, you know, I would love to clear up some of these points. Here's my six questions. And, you know, they sent me, uh, oh, here's a list of blog posts we've written about it. And it's like, yeah, I've read all of those. I, I know all of those. And, you know, we're trying to interpret this for the people who read us. Um, we're not lawyers, but definitely we want to kind of see what this looks like because there was a lot of, a lot of ambiguity. So 
Interesting. I'm glad you're keeping an eye on it, Chris. Um, also wanted to talk about some of the reverse news that we've had. We had a surprising to me uh, development over the last uh, couple of weeks about a new person jumping into reverse lending. So tell us about that. Yeah. So Prime Lending, which I know that uh, their name has appeared on Housing Wire several times in the past, has decided to enter the reverse mortgage business. When I looked over their disclosures, it looked like they were going to be primarily entering the business as a uh, broker, and they're only going to be offering the uh, FHA-sponsored home equity conversion mortgage product, but that accounts for upwards of 90% of reverse mortgage origination volume anyway, so that's not all that surprising. But the fact that you do have a a multi-channel lender that's jumping into the space, that's not an insignificant development. You know, we haven't really seen uh, a concerted forward player jump into the reverse space in a while. There's indications that there are partnerships that are being uh, pursued by active reverse lenders to try and bring potentially more forward personnel into the fold. There are a couple of major multi-channel players that are already involved, like Open Mortgage and uh, and, and High Tech Lending. Certainly, Mutual of Omaha Mortgage has a dedicated reverse division that's a big player in the space. But it'll be really, uh, I'll be very fascinated to see how much uh, prime lending ends up devoting to the reverse space because yeah, we, we don't get a lot of new players all that often. And considering a lot of the consolidation that we've seen in the industry over the past few months with uh, two major lenders kind of, uh, you know, collapsing under one corporate umbrella, as well as the, uh, the late 2022 bankruptcy and exit of reverse mortgage funding from the space, which is very disruptive. Um, maybe prime lending sees a a potential opportunity. I did reach out to them. They did not get back to me in time before I had to actually report the story. But, um, you know, this is just the beginning of their story in terms of the reverse space. So I'll be really interested to see how active they become. And uh, because they certainly have the, the infrastructure to potentially be a major player in the space if they want to, if they devote enough resources to it. Well, and um, we know there are a couple of things here. The reason that you don't have people just going, oh, yeah, we're going to do reverses it. Like it really takes a whole different skill set, whole different training. It's a different timeline. It's, I mean, it's as different as it can be from the forward side in the sense of like the education that's involved and, and, everything that's involved before you get to that loan. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a common point of contention in the reverse space uh, regarding whether or not uh, it's a, a business that is best served by dedicated specific reverse mortgage practitioners or by people who maybe begin in the forward space and train to take on reverse. Because you're right. I mean, if there's a common uh, refrain that I hear from people who are active on both sides, it's that, Reverse is significantly more consultative and it requires a lot of additional uh, information and kind of handholding with the borrower to make sure that they're, you know, meeting all of the necessary requirements, not just for like loan qualification, but uh, to make sure that their counseling is in order to make sure that they submit all of the necessary and rather laborious financial information that goes into a reverse mortgage application. So, the fact that you have a new player uh, jumping into the space, I'm sure, is welcome news for the reverse mortgage industry. And you have seen some instances over the past few months. I mean, I've covered some earnings calls for the public companies that are active in the space, which you can count on one hand, you know, which companies they are. But a lot of them are saying, yeah, forward volume's down. Reverse is still profitable. So we're going to pivot some more resources 
to reverse. I mean, that was most clearly emphasized when Finance of America said, we're going to close down our forward mortgage division and we're just going to move to providing uh, retirement solutions, including reverse mortgages. And, and they just elevated the former president of the reverse specific division, Kristen Seifert, to president of Finance of America at large when they uh, closed the deal to acquire AAG at the beginning of the month. So um, there's a lot of dynamics in play here, but the fact that you do have another player, when I talk to industry analysts, they say that's what the reverse mortgage space needs is more people offering reverse mortgages. So it's a step in the right direction, I'm sure, from the perspective of the wider industry. And as you and I talk about all the time from a demographic standpoint, it makes total sense that this, you know, this is something that the industry should be looking at because we have this, all these baby boomers um, looking to age in place and this is a perfect way to do it. Well, for for people who qualify and sure. uh, perfect, perfect is a, is a perfect is probably not the best word, but you know what I mean? It's a great solution for the right person. It's a relative term. It's you a know? relative I mean, term. Yes. What, what works well for one person does not necessarily work well for the other person, but most reverse mortgage professionals worth their salt will tell their borrowers as much. I mean, I've had more than one interview with a reverse mortgage loan officer who realizes, yeah, this isn't quite the right fit. So let's try and find you something else that doesn't necessarily involve me. You know, the people who are really dedicated to the demographic in the space understand that sometimes there are alternatives that are required to to fit someone's particular financial needs. And, you know, with um, additional, uh, I guess, amenability among financial planners for reverse mortgages and having this serve as a portion of a, of a more holistic retirement plan. I mean, there's a lot of conversations that you can have with reverse mortgages. And I don't think that it's a product category that is given uh, an abundance of credit for its versatility. Like even if it doesn't work, it can lead to more substantive conversations about how to have a, a senior's ends meet. And uh, and there's starting to be more discussion about that, at least in comparison with you know ten or twelve years ago. But it is very slow going, much to the chagrin of the reverse mortgage industry. But um, you know, if you have more players enter the space, then it conceivably might become easier to uh, to facilitate those conversations in the future. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Always very informative when you come on and I appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Always a pleasure to join you. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register.
Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.